Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Goddard in the World podcast. My name is Sam, and I'm here with my wonderful co-host, Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I <laughs> There have been some tech issues, but um, hopefully <laughs> they have resolved. So, yeah. Yeah, this is our second time doing the intro. And you know what they say, the second time is... Um, the best time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's what they say. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> um, we have here that voice is the voice of Dennis Rush. I am mm-hmm. excited to have Dennis on the podcast today because we were in the same cohort at Goddard for a bit. Um, so this is especially exciting for me. Um, But Dennis Rush grew up on a remote tobacco farm in Kentucky. He is a graduate of the University of Nebraska at Omaha and the Goddard College MFA in Creative Writing Program. He lives in Statsburg, New York with his supportive wife, who is also a Goddard grad, uh, a few children, and a menagerie of rescued animals. He is the author of two books of poetry, What Are the Rich Doing Tonight? and Mayfield, both available from Dos Madres Press. Welcome, Dennis. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Um, yeah. This is my first podcast ever. Oh, so. oh my gosh. That's awesome. <laughs> we'll we'll uh, try, take it easy on you, I guess. Thank you. Thank you yeah. so much. <laughs> nothing, nothing, too, nothing too taxing, I hope. <laughs> yeah. uh, Dennis, uh, you grew up on a remote tobacco farm in Kentucky, and I took a look at your Instagram and your website, and I saw so many gorgeous photos, especially out in nature. Can you talk about what it was like growing up in the environment in the tobacco farm in Kentucky and how it's impacted your poetry and art? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's very significant as far as like you know who I became and my poetry and art. Um, so when I say remote, I mean it. It was it was truly at the end of a gravel road where the nearest house was approximately a mile away, and even hmm. it I don't think was occupied most of the time we lived there. So yeah, it's um just a small farm of like right at a hundred acres. And, you know, we had cattle and hogs and chickens and all of that. And I was um, the only child until I was like seven. And then, you know, for a couple of years, my brother was just an infant. So, um, so all I did just is just walk in the woods and, the, you know, through the creeks and fish constantly. Mm. And so it was just this constant um, growing up, just thinking, just like looking and thinking. And, mm. um, but the downside to that is um, I wasn't the best at social skills when I started okay. going to school, you know, and when I tell people the reason I landed in poetry is because not because I have some, uh, that I'm great with language, you know, that's what you assume, like, oh, a poet, you know, he's mastered the language, was well, kind of mm-hmm. the opposite. Like, it's <clears throat> like, it takes me so long to sort of 
process my thoughts and and think about like how I want to say things that that when I started uh, journaling, you know, as a teenager and whatnot, it just really leaned toward poetry because it was so processed. It was so like went through the ringer uh, as mm. far as as how mm. to get my thoughts across. Uh, so I think that's how that sort of developed. Um, mm. You know, it was a lot of uh, the other aspect of the whole Kentucky farm thing is that, you know, I grew up there in the uh, 70s and 80s. And um, the process of tobacco farming hasn't changed, uh, or at that <laughs> moment, hadn't changed for hundreds of years. Mm. So, so it really felt like I was growing up in like the 1800s, like the equipment that we use, the awesome. methods and the labor. Mm. Uh, so it was almost like this, you know, hidden world. Um as the rest of the world was kind of advancing, mm. uh, this Kentucky farm was not, you know, it was, mm -hmm. um, so, you know, when I think about my life, I feel like I've already lived 200 years, you know, because mm. my childhood wow. was, was so antique and then, mm. and then, you know, uh, sort of accelerated as, you know, go off to college and something and see what the real world looks like. But yeah, I, I think, Overall, uh, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have changed a thing. You know, I really think it was a special way to to grow up, uh, but I really had to catch up later. You know, that's <laughs> yep. Well, you said on your guest submission forum that you've lived twenty lives since growing up in Kentucky. So if that oh, was yeah. one, like what were the other nineteen, and how did they help lead you to Goddard? Like how oh, that yeah. sort of fit into the path? Yeah, it's it's um like immediately after high school. Well, even high school, the my whole growing up felt like a couple of different eras. You know, like you had that um, the the tobacco farm, like I just said, living in the eighteen hundreds. But then high school, you know, high school in Kentucky at that time was probably a good twenty years behind everyone else too. So that kind of mm -hmm. felt like, you know. Um, a whole different life of, you know, basketball and relationships for the first time, you know, and all of that. And then after high school, I worked in a factory for two years, um, tried to do the whole college thing. And I was just not ready. You know, okay. um, I was ready uh, academically. Like I, it wasn't, I was just not ready emotionally. I didn't know why I was going. It was just sort of the thing you do. The rest mm -hmm. of my friends were going. So, uh, so I kind of struggled and I was trying to put myself through college by working at a factory. And, um, I actually loved the factory. Like I loved, mm -hmm. like I would ask for extra time over time because you got paid time and a half. And, wow. um, and so, you know, I had a car I was working on. So I just was kind of focused on this sort of factory life. And I wrote about it. And it's in my that first book, uh, What Are the Rich Doing Tonight? Mm -hmm. uh, there's a, um, a poem called Factory Work, which kind of uh, gives you an idea mm -hmm. of what that was like for me. Um, so after the, after a couple of years of the factory life, that's when I started going, okay, I can't do this forever. You know, this isn't where I want to be. It was cool for mm -hmm. a while. So I joined the air force. So that okay. was a whole nother life. Oh, wow. was, so that was six years of, uh, wanting to see the world, uh, get out of Kentucky, 
And it started off, you know, uh, went to Texas for a while. I spent some time in Colorado and then um, Biloxi, Mississippi, did some technical training. But then they stuck me in Omaha, Nebraska for five years of that. Oh. So I really didn't get to see the world. <laughs> but but it was, a you know, I just loved that too, you know. So yeah. I didn't, at the end, when I had that choice of whether to get out or not, it was tough. I just really enjoyed uh, who I was working with. Um, and uh, the technology and the uh, the facilities that they had. And I was able to go to the University of Nebraska and Omaha. Uh, they had a partnership with the Air Force. So a lot of my classes were on base. Um, wow. And so, yeah, it was just so comfortable, you know. Mm. So, but then that's the reason I actually got out was because similar to the factory thing, I can't do this forever. Mm. I didn't like the idea that you could kind of look at your career and tell like, you know, in five years I'll be this rank and I'll be making this much. And mm. then in 20 years I'll have the option to retire, which would be cool. But then, you know, I, I, I was ready to sort of live at that point. I had finished my uh, bachelor's while in the air force and I had recently gotten married. Mm. And uh, so then, so I left that life and my wife and I uh, moved to Oregon Okay. Uh, with no job, no house. We put everything we owned in the back of a box truck, dragged one of our cars behind that and just took off. And um, why Oregon? Why was that where you ended up? I mean, seriously, uh, we looked at a map and said, what would be, a, where would be a cool place to live? <laughs> and um, I grew up in the South, so I didn't want to go back to the South. My mm -hmm. wife grew up in the Southwest in Arizona and she didn't yeah. want to go there. Um, and so we kind of, you know, we, we toyed with the idea of sort of Chicago or, you know, somewhere. Uh, but we were already in the Midwest with uh, Nebraska. So we were like, okay, let's, let's look at one of the coasts. And we just chose Oregon. Mm. And um, we just landed in a Safeway parking lot in Springfield, Oregon. And uh, magically, the next day, we found a cheap little apartment. And um, wow. And just got started with life, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, my three oldest kids were all born there in Oregon. Okay. And we lived there for five years. So there's another life of yeah. going to the Oregon coast as many times as we could. And I worked at a couple of uh, colleges, um, uh, taking my IT experience from the Air Force. And uh, even though I had my degree in English... You know, all the money in the mid '90s was all about technology. So, right. <laughs> so I, so I got a job at some colleges. You know, like um, a community college in Western Oregon Un University. And so, after five years, we started to feel a little bit lonely. We had all the kids, and no one could visit us because we were so far away from everyone. So we were like, "Hey, let's." Um, my wife's brother moved to Boston, so. I just started looking for jobs in Boston. And again, it was the hot time for technology. So it didn't take me long to find a decent job. So we moved all the way across the country with wow. our three kids and oh. began that life, which was the suburbs of uh, Boston with, um, you know, the typical little uh, neighborhood, which, uh, you know, I commuted by train into, into the city. Mm -hmm. um, and again, love that, you know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I worked at a college, um, right across from the museum of fine arts. So mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time there basically every lunch break. Cause I had a, 
you know, a membership so I could just walk in and out whenever I wanted. Um, Yeah. And that's really, I think that's when I really developed artistically and also uh, focusing heavily on the poetry Mm. because life was so busy um, with the kids and everything. Poetry was something I could do on the train or Mm -hmm. just in my head, you Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. just like you don't need a studio for poetry. And Mm -hmm. I see it as as a real art, you know, more than than just, you know, a a form of writing. Like, so... Mm -hmm. So it was a way for me to create these things, uh, do something artistic by literally just sitting on a train Mm -hmm. or, you know, late at night after the kids go to bed. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I really developed it. And, you know, then from there, from Boston, we moved to New York where I got a different job. Um, I've been we've been here for almost 13 years and that's where we Mm -hmm. are now. Mm -hmm. So. That was a wow. that was a that's yeah. A that's that's the journey for sh- a, a couple of different journeys for sure. Right, and I like how, what you talk about with poetry. And earlier, you were talking about nature impacting your poetry and and your solitude or your um, taking time with words uh, for words to come, right. uh, impacting your poetry. And I think that's really an important thing to understand about poetry um, because I think some people do consider poetry to be divinely inspired (laughs) 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 like you know the the Greek mythology there's you know Homer's muse of Calliope or whatever Um, but I know that I am drawn to poetry that is of the of the earth <laughs> so to speak right. uh, yep. in in more ways than one like grounded and uh speaking in kind of more plain language um some of my favorite poets like Sharon Olds for example like um hmm. say the, they use the same words that I know <laughs> like wait i know those words but then the way that they craft the the poem and the last couple of lines there's there's a revelation there that feels Mm. both grounded and um oh i can't i can't even think of it i can't think of it right now (laughs) uh, ethereal like there's something yeah you know um like it's true that poetry used to be seen as the sort of divine thing you know mm-hmm. your the muses are speaking to you or whatever mm-hmm. and i don't know when that i don't, I don't know enough about like, yeah. poetic history to be yeah. like when that changed um but mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm with you i know what you mean yeah thank you, thank you. Yeah. well i can uh, <laughs> yeah i've got this whole little philosophy about art and poetry mm-hmm. that i think that um uh that sort of put it in place for me because, you know, everyone debates like, what is art? What is poetry? Uh, what's so special about poetry? And and really what I think is that, um, and hopefully this won't be too long of an explanation, but um, okay. So everyone feels that they think in a language, right? They think that they, you know, they, they hear the voice in their head. It's, it's in a language, you know, but so much of your thinking is, um, has nothing to do with language. Mm. And I think that when you're in tune with nature, you, you don't need that layer of language to, to interpret nature, for mm. example. Mm-hmm. 
And so, um, but what humans did was we, in order to survive, we, we, we took that, what I call a primal mind, that, that non-language thinking, and we needed to communicate that to others, you know, in, in order to survive, you know, instead of if there was a danger prior to having language, you just screamed and pointed, you know, and then, and so, so once we developed language, then we could warn people. We could say, hey, you know, don't go on the other side of that hill, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so uh, and once that was developed, once that language layer was developed, um, you know, that's when, you know, it turned into storytelling and his- the, the ability to understand history and communicate. Well, we still have all of those pieces today. Like, um, and so... When you see something beautiful or ugly, it doesn't like whatever you're looking at, your your non-language mind has already processed that. And it already knows whether it's a danger or it's not, you know, or whether it's appealing or it's not appealing or whether it's going to aid in reproduction, you know, or something, you know, because it's all about like, you know, getting you to that next day. And then we start to translate that. And the whole, and we don't even, we don't even realize that we're translating that primal thought into language for the purpose of communicating to others. We think, oh, I'm just thinking about this, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the magic of art is that it slows that process down. Like, like your primal mind looks at it and it's not exactly sure. Do I like it? Do I not like it? What is it saying to me? Like it kind of slows that process down. It's not instant. You don't go from those inner thoughts straight to the language layer where you're ready to communicate to others. You find it hard to communicate to others, you know, and there's something about slowing down that process that's really magical for a lot of people. Some people find it scary. Like, you know, they, you know, they're not into art because they don't understand it. And I think the basis of that is that they don't enjoy that slowing down of that process where your inner mind is trying to create a communication outward to others. Mm -hmm. And so, and then the magic of poetry on top of that is that it's using language as its medium, right? Mm -hmm. So, so as your mind is trying to translate it into language that you can then communicate to others. The trick to poetry is that it's using language already. So it's kind of pushing you back into the wrong direction. Your your thought process wants to go from inward to communication outward. And mm-hmm. language kind of throws a wrench in that. And it you think you know what you want to say or how to interpret it, but you're not positive. <clears throat> and the end result, if it's done well, is that 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 back and forth tension uh, between what you feel and how you communicate it is joyful in a way. Mm. And it's challenging. It's like exercising your brain. And the only time we really experience that is when we're infants and we don't Mm. have that language. We don't have. And so everything we see is going from that inward thought process out to trying to communicate it with others. And there's a lot of that bouncing back and forth. And to be able to experience that childlike wonder as an adult mm. through either art or poetry is really a special 
experience. Mm. Yeah. How do you, or how does your understanding of visual art fit into that? You know, did like, do you feel like it's taking out that step where you're trying to warp it into language and back out or does it, feel like an entirely different process altogether. To me, it's it, they're exactly the same. Whether it's visual art or poetry, um, when it when it, it when it takes time to process from how you feel to language, it, they they both behave similarly. You know, like uh, a good example is uh, is Jean Michel Basquiat. You know, his artwork where it catches you off guard. It's not necessarily pretty art. But it's so interesting and it, there's parts of it that can be a little scary and parts of it that can be beautiful and some of it can be beautiful and scary at exactly the same time. <laughs> and, and your brain just looks at it and like some of us get desperate for an explanation and then we take we get confused by what we see and we start looking for experts. We're starting like, OK, let me Google it and see what everybody else is saying about it. Mm. Um, but but to really enjoy and appreciate art, you, sh- you should allow yourself to do that interpretation. Even if it's not correct, that, that process that your brain has to exercise is, is a great thing, you know? And so, and so, yeah, his art is a good example of something that can really sort of mess with you and sort of bounce you back and forth between not sure and, mm. and uh, whether you like it or not. Mm. That's in, that's so interesting. Cause I, so I did my undergrad in humanities, but art history and um, mm-hmm. the way that I appreciated art at that time uh, was like, I have to understand the like scholarship around it to, to appreciate mm. it. And the scholarship <laughs> like helps, like it helps like, Oh, that was the intent or that was the world around this per- like person. And that's why they created this thing. Um, but like my my husband and I recently watched the Ken Burns jazz documentary and Mm. uh, which is a great documentary and I love some forms of jazz and not as much I'm not as drawn to others um and uh (laughs) some sometimes they were talking about the history of this thing. And so I can appreciate it on that intellectual level of the, of that particular musician or art, you know, the, that artist. But I'm like, well, I still don't want to listen to it like on a regular basis. And now when I go through art museums, I know that I have like a, like a historical understanding of, of some stuff. I definitely just kind of go and let my, mind and my heart and my eyes take me to whatever, you know, whatever I'm attracted to. Um, because like, like whatever I'm have a feeling about, uh, because it, I can only see so many things. (laughs) So so I, I do think it's important to honor the experience, um, like how, how one experiences a, a painting or a photograph or all of that. Well, and sometimes I feel like the need for further context out of just enjoying the thing itself, like sort of ruins the thing for me. Like mm-hmm. um, uh, when the reboot of Twin Peaks came out a couple of years ago, there were mm-hmm. parts of the story that I was just like, I don't know what the fuck is going on. Mm-hmm. And um, then ooh, I had a couple of friends who were like, oh, well, if you read some of the like literature and know some of the greater mythology or like, yeah. 
you know, I've had that not just Twin Peaks, but like I've had that experience with other movies where mm-hmm. like, oh, well, if you're familiar with the uh, pagan myth, blah, blah, blah. Like mm-hmm. I shouldn't have any mm-hmm. homework that I need to do in order <laughs> yeah. to watch a movie. <laughs> like I appreciate like, you know, oh, that this movie is doing like a, mm-hmm. that Greek myth or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, there are times mm-hmm. when I appreciate it. But if it's something that like the experience of the thing is dependent on some prior knowledge that I have outside of the thing, mm-hmm. I'm at a point where I'm just like, Ugh. Yeah, like, I'll watch another thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. Because for some people, they do have that knowledge, like, and they can really gravitate towards that thing. But it -hmm. it doesn't have to be you. (laughs) (laughs) Dennis, so you were a poet. Before you before you came to Goddard, um, you were talking mm-hmm. about uh, on on the train in Boston, uh, which I love. Uh, I also love the brevity sometimes of poetry, <laughs> um, right. because as you were saying, uh, you were able to do it on the train or or uh, between raising all the three kids <laughs> and all of that. So, um, what made you want to? go to Goddard I what did you go for poetry and and what made you want to like take it to that level yeah well I always had a, a dream of of going to grad school mm-hmm. just for the purpose of making writing and poetry important mm-hmm. for at least that period of mm-hmm. time so because it's always in the you know uh, when you have a busy life when you're working basically 12 hours a day and the three kids um, instantly turned into six when we started foster care and adopted three oh, kids wow. like all within the matter of three years. So we, so we ended up before we left uh, the Massachusetts area, we had six kids. Wow. And, and so, and I was more and more passionate about um, my writing and uh, uh, also, I also do some visual mm-hmm. art and what, um, and so I was like, if I could get into a grad program, then, then, then poetry is no longer something that has to sit way back in the yeah. back. Like it, it, I can, I can say to my family, look, I, I have this assignment. I have to work on it today. I have to read this book before the end of the week. And like, I could really put that up towards the front of my priorities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like that's what I needed. I needed something that official in order to be able to put it in front of, of other things. Mm-hmm. And, and not, not like I'm neglecting, you know, the kids <laughs> for two years, but, um, but I just needed that. I needed to be able to say, this is not only just important to me, this is something I have to do. Mm-hmm. I committed to this. I'm going to do it. And that's the way it really turned out for me. Like that was those two years of studying poetry and having the assignments and um i just i really appreciated it like i was always enthusiastic about it because it was you know it was for Mm -hmm. me i did it just so Mm -hmm. that i would have that you know so it wasn't to advance my career it was truly just so that i could prioritize that in my Mm -hmm. life you know and my wife also i mean she had a similar reason for going, but it was more, I think more for her is that with the six kids and being a stay at home mom, she was desperate to, uh, to have something as well, like some, something. And so, so she, we, we decided that she, she could go first. That worked out really well. And it also 
uh, gave me this two year long preview of what I would get someday. So that was fun. <laughs> you know, uh, I felt like I knew Goddard yeah. uh, in and out. I knew how the program worked. I knew all the teachers. I knew some of the students before I even showed mm. up. So that was, so it feels like, you know, it kind of feels like I was there for four years <laughs> instead of two. Um, but, but I love that. And I think that's what made it hard, uh, you know, when it was over. Um, I mean, that really was between my wife and I, four years of our lives yeah. that, um, that we had, you know, that in common, a common interest, things to talk about at the end of the day, like, oh, what are you working on tonight? Mm. Um, if you want me to look over that paper before you turn it in, I mean, you know, there was a lot of that. So, mm-hmm. uh, that was really cool. How did you guys first hear of Goddard? To be honest, um, I we needed a program that was uh, drivable from where we lived. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds you know pretty lame, but it's um, but it, because of all the kids and everything, we couldn't feel comfortable about it being so far that it was only a, it was a plane ride away right. or yeah. or so far that but you know Goddard's only I think four and a half hours from us, oh, okay. um, so. So if we were at residency, an emergency happened, sure. it was feasible to drive back down, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> not a very rigorous selection process, <laughs> but <laughs> there, there, <laughs> no, we, there's other schools that are probably maybe even closer to you. So, you know, that's something. Right. Exactly. It was just a, yeah, exactly. We took all of those in consideration. We looked at our choices financially. Mm-hmm. We looked at, you know, um, I don't know if my wife had friends who had gone there. I know, I know I have a couple of people who I knew who had gone there mm-hmm. and I remember having a conversation about just appreciating the vibe mm-hmm. of it just through my own studies of poetry. I had a, an appreciation from Black Mountain College, mm-hmm. you know, down in um, the Carolinas, I yeah. think, right? So, and, you know, they closed many years before this was an opportunity for me, but I always sort of wish like, oh, I wish I could have gone mm-hmm. there, you know, mm-hmm. that would, and then, but Goddard was, was my version of that, mm-hmm. you know, because cool. I didn't want, I wanted an experience different than, you know, sitting in a graduate classroom and and going through you know sort of a upgraded version of undergrad yeah. you know I, I wanted it to be uh i love the history like when i started to look into it i was sold just based on a, its history mm-hmm. and even though you know goddard has this strange way of wanting to love its history and dismiss it all at the same time for <laughs> right. some reason mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but i'm i'm in the camp of uh, embrace it like i mean there's some amazing things happen and it's almost as if well that wasn't that that, that wasn't the same goddard well yeah it was mm-hmm. love mm-hmm. it you know just um so but i did i i really appreciated the history and then when i got on campus uh, and 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 learned more about the history and saw pictures of of people like I idolized mm. on the walls, mm. you know, like I walking around and seeing a picture that John Cage was there mm. or Allen Ginsberg. And I'm like, yeah. wow, this has more history than I even knew, yeah. you know? Um, so I, I didn't go through the MFA, uh, program. Um, eight, so, so I don't know this. I, I was in the individualized master of arts and they let you do whatever. <laughs> I would love to even like I would love to just go back yeah. and do that because I have this whole visual. That's what side I was going to ask. Like, did do they were you able to incorporate any of your visual art, or did you just focus on poetry? Both of which are 
a beautiful thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I just focused on poetry, and 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 for whatever weird reason, um, I can't do both at the okay. same time. Like, um, and I don't know. I've just found that out over the years that um, if I'm focused on my visual art, uh, I produce no mm. poetry during that mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. Like I could work on visual art for six months and realize, wow, I haven't written a poem in six mm-hmm. months. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and then it, when I'm in poetry mode, I just can't get really into the visual mm-hmm. art. I really, I, I really flip back and forth and whatever I'm flipped onto, I just focus okay. on. So, but if I did go back, it would be with the visual art. Cause I've already done the poetry okay. thing. And, um, I'd love to go back for the visual art. Mm-hmm. And um, I've got so many projects that I've just have scribbled in notebooks like that. I would love to explore, you know, and so that would be great, mm. but don't know. If, don't know if that's going to happen, but I would, I would definitely mm. love it. <laughs> yeah, that would be fun. I think all the time, like, look at what else could I get a degree in just so that I could go back to Goddard. <laughs> um, no, so you're not alone in that. Kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm curious about, you know, the first time that I stepped foot on campus, uh, like I immediately felt like I was doing something important. And and maybe that's because I was giving space to something that was so important in my life uh, and didn't have the kind of space that I was giving it before I went to Goddard. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about your first experience sort of being on campus as a student? I mean, you had heard so much about the school. It wasn't your first time on campus because I feel like we met at Diana's graduation. But what was your first experience being a student on campus like? Well, I was just giddy to... (laughs) To, to be like, um, well, just back to school in general. You know, I just love, I just love school. <laughs> uh, so I just remember, um, I don't know, I, I guess, uh, I mean, I don't want to just harp on the, the busyness of having a bunch of kids is like my motivation for everything. But, but um, I, I just appreciated every little, like, I love going into my room and, and just, and seeing the desk by the window and just saying, Oh, just setting up my little space and, Mm. (laughs) um, you know, going to the cafeteria and, and, and because it's such a community room and I'm a shy person, but just letting that go and sitting with people I don't know and saying, Hey, is that chair available? And just starting a conversation. I was just in love with everything, you know? Um, and I love that, that I got to meet such diverse people, and just appreciated their differences. And, and like, I don't know. It was just similar to how at the beginning of this show, I talked about all my different lives <laughs> where we just get up and move and go somewhere else. And, and I'd have this whole new experience. Um, it was definitely that. Like, I had two years where I uh, got to meet people I would never meet otherwise in, in my, you know, real life career. Or, you know, so, so yeah, it was... Um, it was just like a whole new world that just kind of opened up, like blossomed right there for me for a couple of years. <laughs> Did you have any weird culture shocks when you were starting? I was thinking about that even when you were talking about the places that you've moved. You know, the last couple episodes, we've talked about the North versus, versus the South. But um, I imagine that between Oregon and Boston, there's also its own weird set of like 
culture shocks. And so I, I want to hear more about that, but then also like any culture shocks you sort of experienced just being in the culture at Goddard all of a sudden. Yeah. I think that by that point I was well-practiced in culture shock, you know, (laughs) like, I mean, going all the way back to the Kentucky farm thing and I don't know who to, who or what to credit it to, but I just always had this um, very open mind about people and cultures and, various religions and various identities of, you know, it, I, I, and I don't know why I just, um, I mean, at the same time, I felt like I was, there was some sort of mistake when, when I was created and they put me in the wrong spot <laughs> in the wrong time. So, so, um, so along my life journeys, I've been able to sort of recognize like people that I just, feel comfortable with, you know? Um, and even though I don't know why, mm-hmm. like, I just, I, I don't know. I just, you would think that like, if you were just to look at a, a map at the places I've been, you would, you would make some assumptions uh, on like culturally, but for whatever weird reason, um, I didn't fall into those mm-hmm. traps and I felt, and so when I got to Goddard, it wasn't a culture shock as much as sort of a breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. Thanks. That's cool. So we were talking before we started recording about your first book of poetry, first published book of poetry, uh, What Are the Rich Doing Tonight? And that was a book that you started uh, at Goddard uh, during your like, during your time at Goddard and was part of your thesis. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about the inspirations and what kind of ties these poems together thematically well there's there's some of the poems within that collection only a few of them i think um i had actually written prior to goddard you know you go into goddard uh or at least i did and i know i've heard other people say it too thinking that you know the writing is is already brilliant and you just need goddard to put an mfa at the end of it and polish Mm -hmm. it a little bit and you're Mm -hmm. off and running and so it didn't take me long at all like probably you know, <laughs> one residency <laughs> to realize that uh, I had a lot right. of work to do, you know? so I mean, I say that as um, connecting <laughs> to that thought for myself, not, not because of your work. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. So yeah, during my two years at Goddard, I was very prolific with my, with writing, luckily. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people, unfortunately, sort of hit hit walls. But I guess because of my circumstances and how much I appreciated just being there, I was felt unleashed. So I wrote a, a, a ton of poems and then started to see that there were definitely sort of categories of my poems. I could see that some of them were kind of experimental in, in both language and, and purpose. And while a lot of them was really just about sort of a window into my soul, I guess Mm. you would say, sort of that connection to uh, the environment, Mm -hmm. um, but not in a sort of green way, just a connection of whatever space Mm -hmm. I'm in. Um, And so, so it wasn't difficult to sort of parse that out and create that collection, which became my thesis, which was really sort of this existential look at, at my surroundings and sort of trying to build connections um, between my surroundings and myself, you know? So, so when you go through them um, it's, there's really sort of um, 
almost an intimate relationship with with mm-hmm. nature. Um, but it's not like the romantics poets, you know, it's not like Wordsworth, you know, intimate relationship with nature. It's more of a, a metaphor for my own uh, experiences. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I was able to, um, I think uh, when I left, uh, when I graduated, it was somewhere around 50-ish um, poems. And then through the year and a half afterwards, a lot of them fell off, you know, as just not um, being able to support the the theme of the book. And then uh, I was able to add quite a few more, luckily. So, so yeah, I, I can't remember where it landed, but it, it did land somewhere right in 50 again. But that 50 is probably, you know, maybe five from prior Goddard, mm-hmm. probably 25 during Goddard. Wow. And then, you know, was that the, the last 20 were probably after mm-hmm. Goddard. Wow. And you're turning in like 20 poems a packet or so, right? I mean, because you like. Two- oh, no, it's not. It's not okay. that bad. It's, it's, um, yeah. I, uh, how many packets were there? Four Do you for each semester. Oh, okay. <laughs> so. You say that, like, you remember it being wildly different. You're like, oh, geez. We had five each semester. I don't know. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. um, but it really, it was just sort of a, a handful of, of poems, each packet, okay. I think. Like five to seven feels mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. I don't I'm not sure. Maybe it was more. Maybe just because I was prose. So maybe it was like 20 pages of prose. Then I think like right. script writers yeah. had uh, like yeah. 10 or something. Yeah. I don't know. Um, that, so I'm, I'm thinking about it because I'm like trying to figure out the ratio of poems that you were creating and sort of working through at Goddard versus like the ones that actually made it into the finished product. Right. Oh, well, I can tell you that I wrote somewhere in the neighborhood of 120 poems during my two years ago. Oh um, but only, like I say, the 25-ish made it into the the final book. So I think that's yeah. still a really good ratio. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I wrote a lot of... I. Cause I, and I know it because I printed out all my packets when I was writing my thesis. I wrote a lot of stuff mm-hmm. that was like, <laughs> no, <laughs> that cannot go right. in. Like, yeah. so yeah. <laughs> and I, and I am hanging on to quite a few that didn't make it into the, the book, but they didn't make it in because they weren't, it, it's not like they weren't good. They just didn't fit the the feeling of the mm. book itself mm. um so yeah you can't write or at least i didn't feel like you know i'm not going to write a, a collection that that has a very rural or or working class feeling which this book does and then you know throw in a really great poem about an experience on mm. the subway this <laughs> didn't fit yeah. the book mm-hmm. you know so, so I held on to those and, and looking for the right books for those to fit in. Um, and this, the, the one I'm working on now, um, which is kind of slow, but, but still feels good to me right now is really sort of, you know, that whole thing I said earlier about the whole thought process and primitive mind and all of that. 
it's it's sort of with that in mind, mm-hmm. like more uh, even more of an inward book than just you know who am I. It's more of a universal who are we sort of mm-hmm. feeling to it. Um, so, so that's sort of the feeling of the next one. So I'm going to have, so I'm still going to be dragging some pretty decent poems from Goddard on into, you know, who knows if they're ever going to land in the right book, yeah. you know? So it's, it feels like a logical extension from what you were talking about as a kid. And I forget exactly how you put it, but like growing up, it was a lot of walking around and looking and thinking at stuff, which feels very much right. like what are the rich doing tonight? Like, following that practice through into adulthood and what what do the things that you're looking at make you think and what are the things that you think make you look at you know so that's interesting i mean it makes sense that your next book sort of expands that same idea right Exactly. And, um, and sometimes I'll write a poem like now and I'll be like, ah, oh, that would have been great for that other book. And now what am I going to do with it? Cause it's not really going to fit into this yeah. one, but you know, it's still fun to write a poem you're happy with, but yeah, it is interesting. I mean, this has been part of the things that I've learned, like just because it's a great poem does not mean it's ever going to be in print, isn't it? And, and so much of my work has to be sort of a collection. Okay. It's like, like I'm getting such great responses from the book as a collection. Like even you, Sam, you were like, wow, I started and I couldn't put it down because it works as a unit. Like one poem by itself, I mean, it's fine, but I think it, it, I think the art of the book is the collection, mm-hmm. not just like, oh, this is a great, like here are the five great poems in this book. I, it's not a, it's not that kind of book. I don't yeah. think. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, yeah. I mean, that feels very true. I've read books of poems by other people that I know. And it feels sort of like a collection of their inner thoughts, you you know, like um, with prose, you're not always necessarily learning something about the author, but I feel like with poems, there's always something that's revealed or learned. Mm. There's some piece of the author that's always in there. And so I couldn't put it down because it felt like I was just walking around your farm with you. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, this is really nice. It doesn't feel just like, you know, poems about like past relationships or anything like that, but it's like, we're just on this journey. And I, I thought that was very well put together. Thank you. Nice. So that's my review, everybody of what the yeah. rich are yeah. tonight. <laughs> available now. <Yeah. laughs> right. um, and also available is your most recent book, published book, um, Mayfield. And you said that it's it's an account of your volunteer experience in Mayfield, Kentucky. Right. Can you talk a little bit yep. about that? Right. So so that happened the the tornadoes happened in December of last mm. year. And at the same time that that was happening, um I was having sort of my own personal moment of like what you know, needing something, mm. right? So um so yeah, my wife and son were were off on a trip and I had uh, the two other kids that live still live at home. And I said, pack up. We're, we're just going to drive down and plan on staying for a couple of weeks. So, you know, no plan. No, you know, I didn't have a place to stay. We truly just drove until we got to the center of town and just started asking, where can we volunteer? Mm. And it was a fantastic experience. We were immediately absorbed by the community. Mm. 
and uh, we worked at a food distribution center, okay. which was this makeshift. I mean, the tornado had just happened like a like maybe three days prior to this, wow. and they had taken a building from the fairgrounds and just made it a place in which donations would go. <laughs> And then as the donations were coming in, they created basically a giant grocery store out of the donations. And it truly was just like you had aisles and all the food was categorized and um, you had another building behind it that was where all of the initial deliveries would come in and it all had to be sorted. So it was just this army of of um, volunteers, some people in the back sorting, some guys at the docks taking stuff off of trucks, and other people helping with sort of the store environment. And I remember my, you know, I was talking to my kids, like, what are you hoping, to, like, on the way there, because it was like 16-hour drive. I'm like, so <laughs> what do you, you know, and they were kind of like, you know, our dad's nuts, what are we doing? And I'm like, well, <laughs> let's, let's talk about what we could get out of it. And, you know, mm-hmm. out of this experience, like, what is it, you know, because I want them to learn the value of volunteering and, and also not just volunteering, but just um, being spontaneous, like mm-hmm. not volunteering when it works, you know, not when it fits within your right. schedule. Like it was almost Christmas and a lot of people would be like, oh, you know, maybe after Christmas or something, you know, but yeah. Um, so anyway, my goal was for it to be a great experience for all of us and a learning experience. And mm-hmm. uh, I remember telling my daughter, you know, and, and, you know, I think it's going to inspire new writing or some new poems. I was like, it's one of the things that we were just chatting about in the car down there. And it was so much more than that. Like it was like, it just, at the end of every day, it just spewed out of me, you know, um, onto the paper of just like these little, experiences and then when i got back home i just started putting it together and seeing that it just started to come together nicely in the order in which it happened like it's you know and mm-hmm. so uh, i had just published the first book and i went to that publisher and said hey since you know me um you know my work can you just look it over and this was at dos, dos madres uh, robert murphy he's He's like this mentor. He's such a great guy. And he he threw it back at me and said, hey, you, it's a great start. <laughs> you know? and, um, and, but he worked with me and I just kept saying, OK, um, I cleaned this up. I, you know, took out the weak ones. I created a couple of new ones I'm really happy with. And there was just a certain point. He's like, OK, you did it. You made it work. Hmm. And um, and then so. That was published in May, which was only, you know, a few months after the event. So it did for me what I needed as a person. And it was great for my kids. And we made so many great friends uh, in that area that we still con- are in contact with. Wow. So, so my hope was that uh, it inspires others to at least consider, you know, just being spontaneous and volunteering. Mm. And do you have a lot of conversations like that with your kids regularly where you talk about your <laughs> writing and like what's inspiring your writing and like, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> a little <laughs> bit when we're stuck in a car for 16 hours, maybe. Yeah. But and did, like, I imagine that they responded well to that. They weren't like, Oh, dad's, 
being dumb or whatever. You know? No, they um, they really uh, rose to the occasion. So that's cool. Yeah, awesome. How old are your kids? All, the oldest is twenty six, then twenty four, okay. and then twenty two, and then eighteen, eighteen, and fifteen. Mm. <laughs> that's, that's why I ask because like fifteen and eighteen is an easy age to like whatever your dad is doing. Be like, hey, dad, like let's go raise some bulls, <laughs> right. you know? Right. Um, right. So I wonder how in on the process of um, creating visual art and writing things they tend to be. Well, I guess I can. I can just see it in in the things they're interested in and the work that they do and the art that they create. So it's almost like it doesn't have to be said. I can just tell that I've influenced them on things, which is Mm. the ultimate. It's it's so cool just to see them pick up things that I've been doing without – it's like I don't have to push it onto them. I don't say, hey, why don't we all try to do this painting? Um, I don't Mm – I just do my own painting. And then mm-hmm. a couple of weeks later, oh, guess what? <laughs> they they want some art supplies from Michaels. So <laughs> that's awesome. And they've been getting into photography a little bit too. It seems like from right. um, yeah. Instagram because they all follow right. me on Instagram. <laughs> Aww, <laughs> right. My my daughter is really into that, and that's been super fun because she does have a genuinely good eye for composition. Like she, Mm. um, it's not just pretty things like it can be a serious thing or, and, and it's just shaped well within the frame. So I'm excited. Mm. That's cool to have an art, have art be sort of a family thing. Yeah, it really is. That's awesome. So your next book, you said you're working on who the, we are. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's, it's really just this, um, I mean, I wouldn't say philosophical, I, or I don't know. I, I'm really, I don't have a good elevator pitch for it yet, but it's, uh, it really goes into, well, I guess what I would like people to take away from it so far is a realization of how they think and why they think mm-hmm. the way they do. Um, mm-hmm. Not politically, it, just it, just in just the way, like, why do you react when you see certain things? What does it mean to, to find something attractive? What does it mean to be mm-hmm. intelligent? Like what is, um, like one of the poems focuses on, um, we have a pig now, Sam, you know, you saw our pig, right? Um, I don't think we met. I might have. Oh, okay. Uh, I actually saw on your YouTube right. a video. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a video of the pen. Did you build that pen? Yeah, that was one of my projects recently. And, um, <laughs> so, um, but yeah, this, um, our little pig is a rescue. Uh, she was small when we got her. And not long after we got her, she started building a really cool nest, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it was so cool to watch her, like how she would judge, like what to pick up, what to use. She would get in there, trample it down, then get back out, and then go back in and trample it down some more. Like you see this whole process, and mm-hmm. um, and and she it wasn't taught to her it has to be instinctual you know just like yeah. how birds make nests or whatnot but when you see mm-hmm. it in action and in, in an animal that's intelligent you know the pigs are smart animals it's so cool because 
you know, she thinks she's an absolute genius. She's created this thing that she's <laughs> never seen before. And it's cozy. Mm-hmm. Like she's got this, mm-hmm. that you can just imagine what's going through her mind. Like, mm-hmm. um, well, we do that as people. We, we think we're really smart, but then you have to think, well, are we though? Or are we just basically following the natural path of, of the yeah. growth of intelligence and the growth of, of our own instincts and our own feelings and whatnot. So it's just sort of examinations of things like that, where I take something that I just observe and I try to mm. bring it in a little deeper on, on ourselves. Mm. That's really cool. And so that's, you're still developing that. That's a ways away. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> do you have anything um, sooner that you want to plug before we wrap up a bit? i've got a couple of readings coming up um but yeah i mean thank goodness i live close to woodstock like um (laughs) that's the one thing i've really learned about this whole book thing is when you're writing the book you imagine like okay after i'm done with this if it gets published i'm gonna have these readings and i'm gonna do all these podcasts right and then when it happens it takes a tremendous amount of work to find gigs right it's like it's so hard like bookstores are so into you know what's selling um so their schedules are packed so they'll they'll see like well maybe we can get you in like four months from now if you put yourself on a list but so it's just been more difficult than i imagine so as but because of woodstock there's um great little independent bookstore the golden notebook they've helped me out a couple of times Mm. the woodstock library has had a reading they were excited to have me um i'm part of the woodstock poetry association and we have readings every month and so that's what i'm doing on september 11th this um is a reading in woodstock so thank goodness for woodstock because it's really hard to find opportunity so i really appreciate this opportunity I've really been looking forward to it. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, we didn't talk about this or plan this, but uh, since you're here, <laughs> do you want to read a poem to close us out? Oh, my gosh. oh, put me on the spot. I know. I totally put you on the <laughs> <Okay>. spot. <laughs> you can cut out the break <laughs> okay. while, you, while you think about it. Okay. I'll do this the break is longer. that's true yeah we can do that too okay so so here's one uh so i uh yeah so here's one that uh sort of describes me i mean this is really sort of a summary of me right this is Mm -hmm. this poem and it's the first poem in the what are the rich doing tonight because it was so much of like who i'm about because I, i think my my theme is that I just want to be like, I want my poems to be memorable, right? They don't have to like, my objective isn't that they're perfect or that they're groundbreaking literature, but it just means so much to me if, if people just remember them, like they're memorable. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so this one's called, I had the brain. (laughs) I was the kid in biology class who, when given an assignment on the brain, brought in a cow's brain wrapped in butcher paper. My report was poorly written. My poster was poorly designed. But I had the brain right there in front of everyone, naked and pale, just like their own. And I dissected it in front of the class, mostly with my bare hands, pulling the sections apart. My classmates crowded around me, 
in an unforgettable moment of learning, feigning exaggerated disgust. Mm. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. I love the imagery in that. <laughs> and the uh, sort of double, double, it's not really a, a double entendre, is it? <laughs> the, of the, well, there's nothing the, special going on. <laughs> No, no, yeah, no, it's like, uh, no. <laughs> the two meanings of right. I had the brain, the, yeah, for sure. Right, it was just the way my brain worked, like, it's just, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that's how I, yeah, I, that's how I got by a lot, not just in school, but in, like, my work life, like, mm-hmm. um, you know, that whole out-of-the-box thinking, hey, how, why don't we try this, that's really taking me, taking me, you know, everywhere as far as, you know, job opportunities was yeah. to, to do things differently, you know, so. Yeah. Well, and a lot of people are afraid to do that. You know, a lot of people sort of go with the flow and all it needs is one person to say, this is dumb that we do it this way. And right. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of office spaces will go their entire existence without having that person, <laughs> you know, they'll sort of bumble along. But it's, right. it's always really obvious and great when that person comes in right yeah the thing about art and poet i always i just see poetry and art as the same thing so i'll just say art is that you really have to just be willing to look stupid all the time like you really Mm -hmm. have to take risk and the risk have the potential to make you look completely ridiculous you know um, because if you don't take those risks, then it's a craft. It's not an art anymore. Like, and a craftsman's purpose is not to look ridiculous. Like, like that's the last thing a craftsman wants is to build a chair that people laugh at. But a poet and an artist constantly has to just be willing to just say, hey, you know what? I could get laughed out of the room, but that's just my style. <laughs> I like that a lot. That really resonates with me because I always feel like a buffoon at times. <laughs> yeah. Like, who's going to read this? But, right, but that hey, makes you an artist. That's that's what it. That's the magic. That's the little ingredient. Well, that's a nice note to end on. So I just want to yeah. say thank you so much for talking to us today. This was really a treat. Oh, um, I loved it. I just really appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, can people buy your books through your website? That we're going to link to in the, in the show notes. Oh, like my personal website. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be great because um, like they're both available on Amazon, of course. And Mm -hmm. then um, my publisher really appreciates when people buy it there because that's the way he makes the biggest cut. Um, Yeah. If you buy the book through my website, then I can sign it because I've got a stack here and I can send them Mm -hmm. out myself. And then with the Mayfield book, half of, the your cost will go to a library in the tornado area and mm. and it's only through my website that i've been able to you know because basically what i'm doing is i'm giving away my my portion um and, right. and i can't do that through the publisher or amazon so i'd really appreciate it if anybody wants to check it out go through my website so half of that will go to a library beautiful awesome thank you so much dennis <laughs> thank That's you great. This podcast is a project of Goddard Alumni Association. It is produced, hosted, and edited by Sam Rebeline and Amanda Faye Laxon. 
If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast or would like more information, please visit GoddardAlumni.com slash podcast. And please subscribe to the podcast in your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. See you next time.